This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, November 3rd, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Libertarian legal thinking is on the rise, and as Damon Root argues in his new book, Overruled, the struggle over ideas of judicial activism, judicial engagement, and judicial deference will be no less fierce going forward. We spoke following a forum for the book held today. Jeffrey Rosen uh, made a point at the forum today that I thought was uh, interesting, at least for discussion purposes, which is uh, his idea that certain interpretations of the Constitution, when used by the Supreme Court, that are outside of some contemporary understanding of the court, have led to backlashes and then actually been harmful to the ends to which those uh, justices who acted outside of that contemporary understanding actually wanted. What is your uh, view of that historically? Well, if you look at the New Deal, um, the public, as well as obviously the Roosevelt administration, were against what the court was doing. Um, but I'm not sure that that would have um, come out any differently if, the, if, the, if those decisions had gone against the Roosevelt administration, but in a narrower fashion. Uh, that was just... The, the public's tide, the tide of the public opinion had turned at that point. Uh, with Roe versus Wade, that, that's, I mean, that's an interesting question, and it's been debated quite a bit. Um, I, I don't know that we would see a less harsh abortion debate had just the Texas law been struck down. I think that, that there would still be quite a bit of debate about those kind of cases. But, you know, the court is there. These are unelected officials who's with life tenure at the Supreme Court. And, you know, we do want them to be subjected to some public check. You know, you want democracy to have some, some impact on them. And so to the extent, and I think the court is aware when, when decisions are widely unpopular and they take that into consideration and that that's not, that's not out of bounds. Um, but in terms of you should, you, should, uh, you know, I, I think that both liberals, conservatives, progressives, libertarians, everybody would, it, it'd be hard to find someone to say, well, we should pull the punches on our side in this, in this case that really matters and this outcome that really matters to us because if, if the backlash could, could hurt us in the long term, that's, that's you know, probably not how most people think about. You spent some time talking here about the the beginnings of the Institute for Justice. How do you characterize what uh, the IJ project is? Well, I interviewed all of the the founders for IJ and and was very interested in in not just the origins but really the vision and the strategy and how they pursue that and and act out. And uh, Chip Mailer, what he said to me was, you know, he said it's uh, outrageous facts. Uh, evil villains, you know, those are those are centerpieces of the of the IJ approach. That every case has got these things, and because you're moving, you're trying to move the law, and uh, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle on behalf of uh, rights you believe should be vindicated, but but maybe the legal establishment currently doesn't. Um, and they've been just hugely successful. And and one of the things I I um, do describe in the book is the extent to which that it, I mean, it's it's to call it an uphill struggle is is uh, you know it's that's to say the least. The, the rational basis test and this sort of institutionalized judicial deference um, when it comes to economic rights, including property rights, in the eminent domain context. I mean, there's the the the, the precedence and the and the legal establishment is just overwhelmingly says, well, courts should defer, hands off, let the uh, let the lawmakers you know do what they want, and so to be chipping away 
at this uh, at this edifice over over many years and cases, um, and pursuing this very long term strategy. You know, when they when they form in 1991, I mean, they say one of our goals is overturning the slaughterhouse uh, cases, which is this decision from 1873. But this is this long term strategy, and they model their approach on the uh, the NAACP and the civil rights movement, which also had the long term goal of overturning Plessy v. Ferguson. And organizing all their activities around that, and I and I think it's been remarkably successful given the, just the 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 just the, the steep climb that it's been. Clark Neely uh, takes issue with the uh, characterization of judicial advocacy, or I should say, judicial activism and judicial deference. His idea is judicial engagement. That is, uh, I guess, passivism and engagement. So, how do you character? How does that differ with what the sort of dichotomy that you set up? Well, I, I use the term judicial activism fairly neutrally in the book. And I'm also, I mean, I didn't I didn't invent the fact that libertarians talk about judicial activism. You've got Richard Epstein, who I quote in the book. Um, there was a, a, a wonderful book published by the Cato Institute um, called The New Right Versus the Constitution in 1986, I believe, is when the first edition came out. And that book made the case for principled judicial activism. And it, was, and it was arguing against the conservatives, the Robert Borks uh, of the world, who, who wanted this majoritarian judicial deference. But I think that the term judicial engagement is fine, and I understand uh, why, why Clark and his allies are using that term, because judicial activism has such baggage, most people. And then, of course, it's used very wildly, essentially, to any decision I don't approve of. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that you have these libertarians who and, and Clint Bollock, one of the IJ co-founders, uh, also uses judicial activism um, and, and makes the case for it, the case for judicial activism, rooted in principles, but he's still using that, that very loaded term. And it was interesting to me that libertarians, many don't run away from it or they're, and, and I think Roger today, uh, have used the term. So I use it more descriptive and neutrally um, to describe this, this, this debate. Um, and so I don't think that what I'm describing and, and the way Clark's using uh, judicial engagement are so far apart, but I do understand why from a um, moving the, the sort of the hearts and minds of people, uh, you, you, you avoid activism because it's such a loaded term. Having uh, gone through the exercise of writing uh, a book on this subject, what do you come away with in terms of your biggest concerns on behalf of whatever your idealized constitution is? Oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I, one, one of the things I talk about in the book is, is the extent to which the, you know, there's very few really principled advocates of their position. The libertarian legal movement, I think, is very principled. You know, it's personal and economic freedom. They're not choosing between rights. The courts should defend all rights equally. And then the Bork view, and uh, Jeff Rosen is a wonderful proponent, exponent of the, uh, of the judicial deference view, which is that, you know, he's a liberal and he says, well, Roe v. Wade is wrong based on, on my theory. So if, if, if we're serious about judicial deference, we have to throw Roe, liberals have to throw Roe v. Wade out the window. And most, most liberals won't do that, of course. Um, but what you find with so many other people is this kind of picking and choosing of when they want the courts. And, and this was 
clear of President Obama, where there should be judicial restraint in the health care case, but then he wants, but now his administration is, is in favor of judicial action in defense of gay marriage. You know, they're sort of picking and choosing among these among these rights. And one of the things that, so that concerns me just generally, this this um, lack of a principled approach, whatever it is. And I'm, I'm grateful for people like Jeff Rosen who, who and, and um, Judge Wilkinson who really lay out the other side, because th- these arguments are very consistent. They all have deep pedigrees. And um, and I think that that you know not not just conservatives who have to grapple with the libertarian ideas, but then liberals who have to grapple with their own progressive heritage and, and take it seriously. And just and just one one example of my more concrete thing that's that's sort of concerning to me is I think the issue of eminent domain is is very important. And one of the things that we've seen in that context is that um, when the Supreme Court. Going back to the end of the New Deal, the Supreme Court announced, "Well, we're going to we're going to treat some rights uh, more is more important than other, and this is something called the rational basis test." And in the in the case that first laid that out, the court said, um, "When when it's economic regulations, we're going to defer to lawmakers, but more exacting judicial scrutiny uh, would would be appropriate in cases involving uh, the co- constitutional provisions such as the Bill of Rights." Well, uh, the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, which is authorizes eminent domain in limited circumstances, is in the Bill of Rights. It's, it's explicitly enumerated. And in the Kelo property rights eminent domain case in 2005, the court practiced rational basis type judicial deference, which the court's own Caroline Products footnote four jurisprudence suggests they should not do. And Justice Stevens um, you know, to, to my mind, has never satisfactorily addressed that. He's and he has, um, you know, he, when he wrote a memoir, he did uh, talking about his time on the Supreme Court, and he didn't even mention Kelo. He didn't even mention that case. I mean, to him, it's you know, it's not a sort of a big deal at all, and that, that's very you know, very troubling. And if you look at the, the the forces who were allied, Institute for Justice brought that case, and the NAACP, Jane Jacobs, like a, a real ideological spectrum of people were all on the, the property rights side. And, and were, developers were on the other and side. And the developers were on the other side. And, and if you look at the how the opinion broke down, it was the, it was the court's liberals who were allowing this eminent domain abuse to go forward under this, under this judicial deference theory. Um, and I think that, that, and this is an example to me of also not even being true to their principles. I mean, what the Caroline Products decision at the end of the New Deal announced was this way of approaching rights. And then in, in that context and in others, they've even abandoned that to reach results that they might prefer. So your concern then is that this uh, rational basis test that is levels of scrutiny being applied to different rights, uh, this rational basis test will just continue to consume other rights? Well, it, it, it in fact has done that. And so I think that that's, that's certainly a problem. And, and a very interesting thing happened uh, when gay marriage was before the Supreme Court with the California's Prop 8 case. And the uh, Solicitor General Verrilli was, uh, was, was urging the justices not to treat this, this issue with rational basis deference. He, you know, he, and he pointed to some of the, the foundational rational basis cases, which, which deal with opto- ophthalmologists and optometrists and, and regulating the eyeglass trade. And he said, this is not you know, eyeglass regulation. This is something that's sort of much more important. So, I mean, even he, who, and in the healthcare case, of course, the Obama administration championed those precedents and championed that approach. Even he was just like, look, this is, this is bad news for the outcome I want. You cannot, the courts cannot practice this deference here. And, and, and in fact, that's one of the issues in the gay marriage context is, is 
is is is the right to marry is that a fundamental right is it a mere liberty interest and depending on how the court frames it if it if it approaches it that way one one side gets exacting judicial scrutiny the courts what Clark Neely would call judicial engagement taking taking the right seriously and looking to see if the government had any business infringing on it and then the other the other position would be the judicial deference just you know, let the majority have its way. You say that the libertarian side of this debate, and there are not just two sides, there are multiple sides of this debate, has gained some significant ground recently. You characterized the Heller decision as a libertarian case. Can you describe what that means and, and what you see as sort of the the core of this ascendant uh, libertarian judicial philosophy? You know, Heller's libertarian in, in a few ways. I mean, there's the very practical uh, explanation that it was a small group of libertarian lawyers affiliated with Cato Institute, Institute for Justice, who brought the case, their tactics, their strategy, you know, everything about all of the litigation um, was, had all of the hallmarks of the libertarian legal movement and its approach. And in fact, con conservatives, including the National Rifle Association, was initially opposed to the lawsuit and actually tried to get them to drop the case early on and approach them and, and try to derail it because they thought it was too risky, it was too aggressive. But then if you look at the decision itself and the legal methodology, a, a Washington, D.C. had gun, a gun control, several gun control laws that are under, under attack. Those laws had been fashioned by local officials, and those local officials are accountable to the residents of Washington, D.C. And under a philosophy of judicial deference, you want to you, the, the courts are supposed to put the thumb on the scale in favor of the government actors, in favor of the elected branches, the democratically accountable branches of government, and no no such deference was was given by by Scalia by the court in that case, and the the Holmes Bork judicial deference approach, which and, and Judge Judge Wilkinson who criticized Heller basically lambasted in those terms, said that this was a case that the conservatives betrayed their own principles, betrayed their own commitment to deference. And I think he's right that conservatives did not practice deference in that case, that they practiced a, a libertarian, engaged, active uh, legal philosophy. Damon Root is author of the book Overruled, The Long War for Control of the U.S. Supreme Court. You can watch a forum for the book at Cato.org.